Welcome to the gardening show on Radio Caram. My name is Henry. (laughs) My name's Brendan. How you going, Brendan? Very good, Henry. How are you? Very good. Ten episodes. Yeah. How's that? Can you believe it? No, I was... uh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm that's, really proud of it. It's, we've gone 10 episodes. It's been really great so that's, far. That's Thank 20 you. 20 weeks. Mm. Makes, <laughs> that's almost half a year if I'm thinking about it that way. I know. Yeah. It's um, since May. What a, yeah. What a wild ride. Mm. <laughs> I was thinking about it. I was, I was just hoping that people at home listening have been able to take something back into their garden and, and have been able to learn something from the show and interact with it. Um, it's been really exciting. Thank you, Henry. Uh, thank you. And yeah, I hope so. I hope people have take, <laughs> taken something from it. Um, but yeah, we are, of course, the, ghost, the hosts of The Gardening Show on Radio Caram, and we're excited to be joining you to talk about all things gardening and local food production. We're two local dads, and we share a passion for the garden, sustainability, growing food, and just giving it a go. We also help to run Downs Community Farm, which is a budding non-for-profit just adjacent to the Seaford wetlands. And our mission is to promote and share the benefits of home gardening in our local community. We'll be talking about gardening in general, we'll play a few tunes, and grow to engage with our listeners uh, via uh, questions that get sent in and interviews which is going to be the running joke in this that I still haven't. Season one, <laughs> no interviews <laughs> yet. Um, it's been a very busy two weeks, <laughs> but we'll get there. Uh, but as always, we'll start with an acknowledgement of country. Absolutely. So I'd love to acknowledge the Bunurong and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional owners and custodians of this land and pay my respects and our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and also pay our respects to the land itself and the bounties that we receive from it. Absolutely. So what have you been up to the past couple of weeks in the garden? In the garden. So today I got to admire a little bit of rain. Well, a lot of rain. Yeah. <laughs> um, just coming home and, and checking out the uh, the rain was really nice. In the garden, more seeds, more seed prep. Uh, and I also spent a bit of time just clearing up. So clearing out some of the old produce that I didn't want in there and old plants that I didn't want in there anymore. Um I spent a few minutes just checking out the bees on those uh, the Pride of Madeira because they oh, yeah. were really loving it. They were going very well. What about you? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a blur. I'm not even sure what I've done. Uh, I've, I've kept the seedlings moist, so they are mostly starting to um, – most of them have uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? Germinated. Yep. <laughs> and are starting to get to that point now where – they're, they've got, you know, they're, they're developing their first set of true leaves. So it's time to pot up mm. into, into a larger pot. Uh, and similar, um, starting to slowly clear out the garden. I don't want to remove everything until I have something fresh to go straight in. I think yep. It's always better to leave stuff in the ground. But those things that are already looking like they're totally done, um, just pulling them out and throwing them in the chicken coop. Is there anything that you've let go to seed? Yes. So I planted some purple broccolini, mm-hmm. which I'll be honest, um, hasn't done t- super well. It got a bit leggy. I just don't think it was in the right spot. Um, but I let one of them just go fully to flower, which you can imagine uh, quite an impressive display when a, mm. when a broccoli or a broccolini opens up. Uh, and that's been really good for the bees. Yep. I've been loving that. Uh the radishes, so the, there's a couple of radishes. Most of the radishes did quite well, uh, but there was a few that, you know, just kind of stay in this weird little size and there's not much you can do with them. 
So I just let those ones go as well and they've kind of very similar looking flowers to to the broccolini to be mm. honest, yep. just white instead of yellow. Uh, and I've got a couple of lettuces still that are starting to get to that point where they're getting tall yep. and they're soon going to shoot out a spike and I will I will leave those because mm. I want that sort of lettuce just kind of randomly popping up everywhere. Yep, so, great idea. Yeah, and then besides that, uh, just planting a lot more flowers. So just stopped by the shop and just bought a few punnets of some more nasturtiums. Um, I've got some of those variegated leaf, I think they're called Alaskan something. Mm-hmm. Um, a few of those, uh, some marigolds, a few other bits and pieces, and done some hanging pots and just kind of dotted them in everywhere. Very so nice. It's been quite nice. Uh, and the weather's been interesting. I mean, beautiful and warm on the weekend. And then today... <laughs> we got a bit of a taste of that hot, dry weather yeah. for a little bit. And I did notice that the garden started to dry out rapidly. Yes. Um, but then obviously coming through with this rain now is is a blessing in disguise. Mm, a good we deep do have soak. A mm. deep soak. And we do have a lot of rain coming, which is hopefully really good for the gardens. Yeah. What did we discuss last week? Oh, well... Oh, last we episode. Went, we went deep on yes. many things last week. So we talked about botanical names, um, so how they work and why you should use them or care <laughs> at all. We did a spotlight on sweet potato. Um, can you remember the botanical name for sweet potato? Oh, it's got a batata in it. It's got batatas at the end. That's right. I can't. I also can't remember the genus. No. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, uh, not fair to put that one on you. Um, we talked about the eighth permaculture principle, which is integrate rather than segregate. And then you took us on a real deep dive on some interesting growing methods that don't involve soil. So hydroponics, aeroponics, aquaponics, and we touched on a few other what I thought were hilarious ones like uh, electro electroculture, electroculture yep. and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, have a listen if you want on uh, Radio Karam's website, radiocarum.org. You can go back into all of our previous nine shows uh, or anywhere you get your podcasts, Spotify, etc. But what about this week? What are we yeah. talking about? So this week we're going to be looking at greenhouses. We're going to talk greenhouses, hot houses, cold frames and other different ways to control climate. Uh, we're going to do a deep dive and a spotlight on everyone's favourite, Tommy's tomatoes. Yay. And uh, the ninth permaculture principle, uh, use slow and small solutions. Very wise. Mm. We're also going to talk plant diseases and deficiencies, how to diagnose and treat them. Yes. So... so as Henry mentioned, yes. don't forget to send us through the gardening questions. We're very keen. Um, tell us as well, what's been, what have you heard from the previous ten, nine episodes and what have you taken from that? Share with us what's worked for you. Yeah. Um, give us your tips and tricks about tomatoes because everybody does have some. Um, you can send us in the questions on 0493 213 831 or, of course, on the email, uh, thegardeningshowradio at gmail.com. Absolutely. And I did check the email uh, ahead yeah, of yeah. the show. I remembered. And we got a question. Awesome. Thank you. So, thank you to Laurie. Um, the question was, I've inherited some raised garden beds in my rental. And they're made from what looks like treated wood or treated timber. Is this safe? Uh, also, what about things like lead? in you know old house paint 
um, particularly old weatherboard houses, when it's flaking. Thanks for the great show, guys. Awesome. Thank you so much, Laurie. That's a great question. Um, shall I kick it off? Yeah, I'll go kick for this it. one off. So, uh, treated timber obviously comes in many different forms. Um, if you go to the big green box shop and you'll see lots of different types. Um, but typically, what you'll see is uh, treated timber from the construction industry. So, they'll have a whole series of different ratings based on how much essentially how much moisture they can deal with for a time they will always eventually degrade um, but the one that is quite concerning of course is um, timbers that are treated with cca so that's copper chromium and arsenic salts um, that's your real typical framing timber that you see um, 90 by 45 mil or two by fours in america treated um, pine treated pine that's it now i don't know about you but for me with this one, when in doubt, just assume it's treated. <laughs> it's, it's, you're always going to be safe that way. It is a safe way to go. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's Unless there's markings on the wood or you can see it clearly indicated or you've got previous experience from the owners or who somebody who used to live there mm. um, and they can say, yes, I've, I've done this and this and this and it's eco wood or it's heat treated or something along those lines. Um, when in doubt, I think probably best to... Just be a little bit wary. Yeah. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, first of all, let's just talk about why should we care? Mm. Um, you know, but no, no, great question. I think really, and I haven't really done a lot of research into the the science of this, I suppose, but you know, <laughs> arsenic is obviously for one, not one thing that you want to be eating. No. And no. Uh, the issue isn't necessarily that it's close to your plants, it's more that it's in contact with your plants um, and with the soil and therefore the roots. And that's where these chemicals, as far as I'm aware, can be leached up into plants, in mm. particular things like leafy greens and things like that. Mm. So how can you make them safe? Well, really, I mean, the, the best way to make them safe is to just get rid of them and start with something else. Perhaps use an untreated hardwood. So cypress pine would be the most cost-effective choice. Um, and pretty common, lasts a fair amount of time. But again, it's always going to break down in the end. Or something like a, a, you know, a metal corrugated iron sort of bed. They're quite popular as well. But what you can do, if you want to, if you insist on using that, is to create a barrier. Mm. So, so line it maybe. Line it mm. exactly. Line the inside of it. So now, if you've already got soil in there and it's not lined. I will say the best thing you can do is to remove all of that soil and get rid of it. And I know that's not going to be necessarily easy to do. Um, when it's empty, you want to line it with something ideally impermeable would be best practice. So you could use what I've done with my beds is use um, yeah corrugated tin sheet, you know, sort of color bond sheet. Mm-hmm. Or if you need black plastic, it's one of the few times I would say <clears> – <throat> get some, you know, sort of black plastic to line those beds um, and then just make sure that, you know, around the edges, um, you know, that leaves that are maybe falling and resting on the edge have a way to deal with that. Mm. So maybe line the edges in a hardwood or if you don't mind the look of it, maybe you could just wrap the plastic around the top as well. Mm. Yep. Best practice. So you could always take some of the soil out if you wanted to and replace the soil. Um, a few different methods there. Congratulations, Laurie, on getting a 
on getting a rental with a garden. I, I know yeah, I've that's awesome, certainly right? gone into rentals and been like, <laughs> oh, I really want to just dig up this garden and put my own things in there. And I've often wondered or been hesitant to say, you know, how much impact can I actually have and change around mm-hmm. with this garden if I'm only going to be in here for, you know, one or two leases for yeah. 12 or 24 months. Um Give it a go, yeah, by all means. And it's also going to be, um, Laurie, your your level of acceptance and, and where you're at with with that. Uh, as Henry was mentioning, really the plants are, their job is to leach and pull up nutrients yeah. um, from from the soils. That's how they do and how they get their, how they grow. Um, so we do need to be mindful of that. And as you said, in, especially in those leafy greens, but um, hopefully it's had a good history and you get to learn a little bit more and hopefully it's all usable um, without too much work, but awesome. Second part of that question, mm. lead. Lead. This is a big, scary one, of course. And yeah. I think yep. we, we did, heavy metals. Yeah, heavy metals in no general, good. right? Um, obviously, I think we talked about this in our soil episode. I, mm. I think we touched on it as well. Um yeah, I mean, obviously you should be testing your soil anyway, I think, in a new environment just to make sure you know what you're working with, particularly if we're talking about the soil that's in the ground as opposed to in raised beds. Um, but there is, of course, the issue of old houses um, that perhaps, you know, were painted with leaded paint, which was very common back in the day and now are now flaking off that paint hmm. due to age and they haven't been repainted. Best thing I could suggest is get it tested mm. get the invest the money it's worth even if it's a rental it, if you think you're going to be there for a long time and you want to grow food get it tested get it tested um, what you could also do is plant fruit trees in that area and the reason for that and i think you should still do your research on this but as far as i know um lead cannot be pulled up a tree trunk <laughs> you know what i mean uh, and into a fruit so there's a, there's a sort of barrier there that um, heavy metals can't go up. But I would – that's my belief. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've got it a pretty good authority that that's true. I haven't done a lot of extra research though, so I'd still look into that. Um, so that you're making the best decision for your health and the health of your family and your friends and whoever might be eating that produce. Mm. Mm. Great comments. And yeah. thank you so much again, Laurie, for the question. Absolutely. We have got another question that has come through the text line, but we might actually save it for later for our spotlight because it does relate to tomatoes. Way there we go. That was a great, great thought there from that person. Uh, so let's go to a song then. Uh, first one of the day. So this one is ELO or Electric Light Orchestra. You probably know what song I'm going to play. I love this song. <laughs> Mr. Blue Sky. If you feel the caraway, just call Mitchell Tall. Or in Patterson Lakes, just call Mitchell Tall. Anywhere Bayside, just call Mitchell Tall. Buy a summer house, just call Mitchell Tall. Mitchell Tall. Real estate. Oh, yeah, a little real estate. We want more. We did it. One take. And we're back. Welcome to The Gardening Show. You're with Henry and Brendan on Radio Caram. Cool. Let's get into our first topic of the day. Greenhouses, hot houses, cold frames, glass houses, things that are transparent <laughs> and let light in. But they do a little bit more than that. Mm, tell us. Mm. So last week we talked about different growing systems and styles. So today we're talking plant houses. 
uh, we, too, we, we can and do um, pop plants in all sorts of places around. And over the episodes, we have developed an appreciation for things like microclimates, um, different spots in the garden that might get full sun all day long, spots that may have more shelter, positions that get more or less wind flow, all of those sorts of things. Mm. But let's the, talk about houses. Yeah, so here we're, we're looking at a few things. So spaces that give gardens the ability to create and control the environment. Um, so things like heat, light and humidity um, is really what we're talking about, moisture generally speaking. Um, plant out uh, of climate. So, you know, plants that typically wouldn't grow in, let's say, for example, Victoria. Mm-hmm. The ability to maybe do that, yeah, yep. <laughs> depending. So the big thing that we're talking about mainly is is tropical plants, yeah, um, and even you know sub subtropical plants, maybe things from you know the top end of New South Wales up as well, being able to grow those a little bit more successfully. It's mm. a big one. It's like our mate Russ Finch in Nebraska. Oh, the the citrus. What was it called? The uh, the greenhouse in the snow. Greenhouse in the snow. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Go back to that one if, if you want to find out. What was that, episode one maybe? Mm, <laughs> episode one two. two. It was pretty, pretty early on. Um, there's lots of different styles historically from the classic conservatory in the old manor house, uh, you know. Um, but they've been around for hundreds if not thousands of years in some way, shape or form. I think if you think about it and, and uh, from history books and mm. from our, our general knowledge, we know that we've been adapting and we've been t- controlling and, and modifying climates to produce food for, for, as we said, hundreds if not thousands of years. That's it. Um, yeah, this is one of those things you can let your imagination run wild. Um, I've, I'm still deciding whether I build a little one but I'm going to do the classic maybe not so classic, but the trendy thing of I've collected a bunch of random windows, mm-hmm. timber-framed windows, and it's going to be all kind of hodgepodge grouping of windows with an old door and sort of do it that way. But you can, of course, buy very fancy steel-framed, aluminium-framed, quite large glass houses. Um, there's, of course, you know, big polytunnels as well. You could maybe classify within this area too on market gardens and sort of farms. Um but one thing that's always important, of course, is airflow. Yeah, yeah, very much so. That's a big one um, because, as we know, a lack of airflow and too much humidity means mold. Mold. It means too much fungus. So, something to um, yeah, to keep in mind. But I guess what are some of the typical examples, Brendan? Yeah. So a couple of examples we've got here. So we've got cold frames. And cold frames is an interesting one. Essentially what this is is a, a mini greenhouse mm. in the garden. And I think you've mentioned a few times your new seed raising bed and you went uh, and got a big perspex or plastic cover and simply flipped it over and used that as the yes. as the small cold house or cold frame in the garden. Um, what else have we got? We've got greenhouses. And greenhouses can be generally greenhouses and glass houses and hot houses generally very much all the same thing yeah. um, what we're making them out of in a lot of instances so a glass house is obviously going to be made out of glass a glass version uh, a hot house where we've got an artificial heat source or mm. potential artificial heat source like a heat mat or something or a heater could be could be either okay. of yeah. Um, and of course, we just mentioned the uh, the greenhouse. So, it's something that's made out of glass or poly or um, polycarbonate or plastic, essentially. Yeah. Um, if you want to go real small, 
if you uh, maybe live in a small apartment like I did when I first moved to Melbourne and I didn't have my own garden, I went deep on terrariums. Yes. <laughs> I had so many bloody terrariums huh? all over my house. They had little models in them of people. I went I went really weird with it. Yep. Um, but that's basically a tiny version um, where you can grow you can grow most things in a terrarium to be honest, but there are very specific plants that are, you know, micro plants, not mm. microgreens, micro plants. Um that, you know, appreciate that kind of, you know, moss is a good example. Mm, moss mm. and little begonias and things like that. Um, and then on the big, big scale, we can have things like sunrooms uh, yeah. or earthships. Um, so a sunroom is, how would I describe a sunroom? It's almost like a, a glass house or a greenhouse that's integrated into the side of an actual house. Yeah, yep, yep. And essentially another room, um, but could have a big, yeah, sort of integrated raised bed in it as well. Mm. So if you ever go to Meliodora, so that's David Holmgren, uh, his place, um, obviously one of the birthplaces of permaculture, um, he's got a pretty uh, – him and Sue have a pretty epic sunroom um, as part of the entrance to their house. And Earthships is is that, but the, like the whole house is sort of turned into that mm. in a way. Yeah. <laughs> All sorts. All sorts. So the world is your oyster and there are a lot of different variations. And as we were saying, as you mentioned before, really great from a design point of view just mm. to let the imagination go wild. <laughs> and again, try things out, see what you find. Yeah. I love it because it's there's something for every budget here. Mm. Yep. You, know? you can go digging for bits of bits and pieces out of the um, hard waste or anything yep. like that and you can still create something and have it work That's for sure. It. Um, so as, as we sort of touched on uh, with all these systems, it's important to monitor temperature, um, light of course, but a big part of this is that you are allowing light in mm -hmm. to raise that temperature, um, but especially humidity, um, humidity and airflow. So you will see, particularly with larger glass houses and greenhouses, they will have some sort of a venting system, either sort of louvered windows, those sort of slats that go up and down, um, or those automatic fans that turn on. You can get real technical with it and have a proper sort of monitoring station or super smart with apps mm. that automatically opens vents and pushes air in and out. Um, ideally to just keep things as constant as possible temperature-wise, but still good airflow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. So one of the things we don't want is, as we mentioned before, the fungal disease or baking plants. We don't want to cook our yeah, plants. No. <laughs> we don't want to cook them until we want to cook them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then going the opposite way for a minute, um, but still in the theme of climate control, what about a mushroom room? What do you call that? I don't know, a bucket. That's what I would <laughs> I don't know, what would you call it? So it's actually called a, a mushroom fruiting chamber. I love that. Yeah, that's that's very uh, very sci-fi. Um, yeah, well, very similar. You know, I've seen some pretty interesting setups for mushroom growing. So everything from um, stacks of painters' buckets in a, a cool dark shed mm. to one of those cheapo plastic greenhouses that you can buy. You know, the ones that are sort of just a few shelves mm. um, that has sort of been retrofitted with fans and things specifically for mushrooms, for an apartment. Ah, have they worked? Have you seen with results? This was an old co-worker of mine and uh, according to him, yes, cool. very much so. But it did take up a significant portion of the lounge room. Was, uh, <laughs> wow, that's commi I don't commitment. Think maybe his partner wasn't too happy with that, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and going back to the terrariums, and this is a quick did you know, 
The world's oldest terrarium was built by David Latimer, which hasn't been watered since 1972, which is just over 50 years. I think I've seen this one. It's the big sort of round one with a cork in the top. Correct. It hasn't even been opened. It's just like a a little integrated system. Correct. Yeah. 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 So it creates its uh, the plants break down and um, it creates carbon dioxide. There's microorganisms in there. Essentially, it's a closed climate, um, which is amazing from an, an experimental point of view because mm. um, you could have multiple generations. If I'm sure there'd be uh, insect um, lovers who would be able to monitor and study yeah. that sort of thing for sure. There you go. I wonder what it would smell like when you opened it. I would think good. Probably it, good, right, if, if everything's alive. If it's done what it needed to and yeah. it's balanced itself and especially lasting for 50-plus years, uh, you would think it would, has, should smell good. Uh, yeah. Well, there mm. you go. Um, give it a go. Build something like that, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, are there any other examples that you've seen uh, mm. before or have you ever played around with this idea or thinking of it, Brendan? I would love to, Yeah. I would love to uh, experiment. I'm, I'm all for experimentation and especially on that micro level, I'd, I'd really be keen to try out some of those tropical fruits. Mm. I'd love to try lychees and mangoes and things like long arm berries and stuff like that. I yeah. think that would be really great. And some that I've seen, to be honest, I haven't had much exposure to, to a lot of glasshouses and greenhouses, um, often for propagation. Uh, So that's where I've seen it being used Mm. effectively really, really well as seed raising areas. Yep. Um, Just to get that soil temperature up and maintained and uh, nice and warm to germinate the seeds and then going on from there. Uh, One or two interesting designs online uh, and that's usually just envious, intricate glass greenhouses that kind of – architecturally designed and it's kind mm. of it's it's a really cool space so just looking with envy for the most part what about yeah. you oh, i yeah, i've seen some pretty good ones as i mentioned um yeah the one at meliodora uh which is a, a sunroom uh it's just really cool like you sort of walk in it's almost like an integrated mudroom slash closed off mm. patio kind of area but it has a big long bed down the side which is growing things like sweet potato yeah, <laughs> stuff yep. like that um what else have i seen i've seen a really good one that was made from yeah just a bunch of um windows that were found and like everything from like french doors to you know lead light windows all sort of hodgepodge put together mm. but framed very nicely and then all kind of all the timber painted white and it just looked it looked really good. I don't know. And then uh, in there, there was like a, a chair for like, you know, reading and stuff. and A cozy space. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. It gives that feel and that inside outside feel that mm. you're, you're still inside. You're still in a cozy space, but really you're out outside. You're looking out uh, at the views and you've got plants and stuff inside with you. That's it. And what a great way to be outside-ish uh, in the middle of winter, mm. you know, when it's yeah, you know, it might be 10 degrees outside, but it might be a nice 22 degrees in your conservatory, mm. you know. And you can look over at your coffee plant. That's what I would like to do. Coffee plant? I'd like to grow coffee. Yeah. I think that would be a really interesting thing or even like a coca bean or something, you know. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Now, pergola area. 
You say you say that that's the the closest thing you have. Uh, it, it is for for me at home. I don't really have a greenhouse setup, and when I think about um, raising the seeds, I've got a couple of different options. Mm. Uh, we do have a long veranda like pergola and very corrugated iron. Some of it's solid and some of it's transparent. Okay, yeah. Um, and that's really the closest thing that I've got to a greenhouse, to be honest. Um, it allows some sun to come through in parts. Uh, sometimes even still, I'll still start my seeds inside um, especially for germination um, mm. and I've been experimenting and trying other germination methods out like getting some uh, paper towel and then popping the seeds in there mm. popping it in a ziploc bag wetting it spraying it down a few days in a row and just making sure that just waiting for the the seed embryo to just break apart and yeah. to start to sprout out and then transfer them very carefully into an outside or into the soil from there. Yeah, that's great. That's like a great house that you can take with you in your lunchbox. Mm. <laughs> I think my, my challenge is and the thing that hasn't worked so well about that space outside is the keeping it watered. Um, and out of reach just because it's out of reach of the hose line I've got to hand water that and if I'm busy with the kids and doing all sorts of other things there are days where I forget and it can dry out pretty quickly so that's probably the challenge and the closest thing I've got at the moment there you go Um, yeah I mean if you've got a pergola that has clear panels on the roof I mean the real DIY sort of (laughs) way to create a greenhouse would be to get those clear cafe blind plastic, plastic sheet things yeah. that kind of roll up and down and you can sort of sh- sh- cover all sides and make a greenhouse. But that would work. That might uh, – your mileage might vary on that one I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think one thing I have seen, especially with the cheaper poly houses mm. and uh, some of the plasticky ones, a, a fiberglass or fiberglass style – after a while and simply seeing being outside in the elements, they can break apart and be get a little bit manky after time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and having shards of things like glass fibre and that sort of thing isn't the nicest to handle. So Not ideal. Uh, limited lifespan on the plastics. Mm, I mean, if you can afford it, I'd say go glass, mm. um, of course. Uh, but, yeah, that's... I think, I think we're done on that topic. Mm. I mean, this is one where I do encourage people, if you're even remotely interested in this, um, perhaps do a bit more research. So, um, yeah, at least in my experience, YouTube, if you search, you know, DIY greenhouse, you are going to find a wealth of really cool Tons. and different stuff. Yeah, for sure. To look at. Should we go to a song? Let's go to a song before we get into everyone's favorite fruit to grow. Uh, tomatoes, but this one, <laughs> this song, you sent this one in, and I've listened to it a ton of times now because I actually really like it. It's a bit, a bit of a bop. Um, this one comes from a, a Nigerian guy, I believe he is, mm-hmm. called Timaya, and the song is called Tomato. What do you know? Hey, everybody, this is Art Alexakis from the band Everclear, and it's good to be talking to you here at Radio Karam. Welcome back. To yeah. the gardening show on Radio Karen. <laughs> that was a fun song. That was. I was having a bit of a dance. It makes of. you want to have a boogie. It definitely does. That once again, if you're if you're keen, that was a uh, tomato by Timaya. T I M A Y A. How about that segue though? Right into our next topic. It's amazing. Um, should we get straight into it, or do you want to do this question first? Maybe we we'll do the question right after. We'll do the question after. Yeah, that sounds it's good. Gonna, it's going to work well in. 
Absolutely. So this is a spotlight. So a spotlight, our spotlight session is where we, uh, or section is where we sort of focus in on one particular kind of plant or one particular kind of method or something in gardening and do a bit of a deeper dive on it. Um, so hit us up with the botanical name, Brendan. Right. All right. So Solanum lycopersicum. Hey, there you go. How did that sound? That actually, I looked it up and that's that's correct. Very nice. <laughs> that's really good. So Solana acai. ACI. I think I still think it's ACA. ACA? ACI? ACA? I, I could be wrong. I'm going to look that up. But anyway, it's the nightshade family. There we go. So, um, of course, related to um, their peppers family, so capsicums and chilies, um, eggplants as well, uh, Cape gooseberries, tomatillos, and um, everyone's favorite not edible weed uh, that pops up in your garden you're like oh what is that and then you read about it of course deadly nightshade (laughs) Uh, or belladonna i think it's also known as Mm. that might be something slightly different but anyway uh, it's that sort of one with the tomato looking leaves but it is for me i consider this the transition plant for Mm. gardeners and what i mean by that is if you have success with tomatoes, you uh, you officially become that garden person yep. in your friend group or your family. <laughs> um, but I think they have caused many potential gardeners who have just started out to kind of abandon the hobby, the passion, whatever you want to call gardening, due to uh, a failure in a tomato crop. Mm. Um, but while they can sometimes be finicky, I think with a few tips and tricks, it's actually not that hard to get a real bumper crop. When you were saying you turn into that guy or that person, mm. where um, often with the tomatoes, once you get it going uh, and you've allocated a space for it, a, a small amount of tomatoes can quickly turn into a lot of tomatoes yeah. and you're looking at ways to offload them, make <laughs> passata, make <laughs> sauces, all of those sorts of things. Oh, absolutely. No, it's brilliant. Um, and yes, you know, while it is culinarily uh, a vegetable, it is treated like a vegetable in the kitchen. Botanically, it is a fruit. Mm. And I will die on that hill. Go for it. <laughs> no, duck. no. I'm going to duck for cover, but I will die on that hill. Um, but either way, an awesome plant to grow. Mm. So let's go into a bit of history, quick mm. history of tomatoes. Um, the tomato originated in South America and it was spread all around the world after the Spanish colonization of the Americas. And genetic evidence shows that the progenitors... Uh, progenitors, sorry. Hey. Now, this one was a new word for me, Big but words. progenitors, where, where it's coming from, yeah. um, of tomatoes were herbaceous green plants with small green fruit in the highlands of Peru. Um, so one species, Solanum lycopersicum, uh, was transported to Mexico where it was grown and eaten by Mesoamerican civilizations. Uh, just when it was domesticated, not entirely sure, mm. um, but... It, It was known, uh, the first domestication may have actually been a little yellow fruit. So Mm. similar in size to a cherry tomato, but perhaps not quite the big red tomatoes that we see now. And Aztec writings mentioned that tomatoes were prepared with peppers, corn and salt. Um, The word tomato, it does sound really good actually. (laughs) Um, You just say two, three things like tomatoes, basil and bocconcini and it's straight away. A bit of balsamic. No, I'm hungry now. There <laughs> <you go>. <laughs> <laughs> the word tomato comes from the Aztec tomato, um, literally meaning the swelling fruit. There you mm. go. A couple of little other quick points, Solanum. So Solanum, um, the genus, uh, it's the ancient Roman name, or Latin name for 
the deadly nightshade, mm. of course. Uh, Lycopersicum is a mixture of Greek and Latin. So, again, so going back to last week's episode on the history of how these names sort of came about, um, many members of the nightshade family are poisonous mm. and I'm not sure if it's all of the leaves, but I think most of the leaves are not edible at all. So, yeah, don't be eating tomato leaves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't all. add them to salads? No. Um, there's two kinds. So we have determinate and indeterminate. You've mm. probably heard this term before. Um, I guess the simple way to break it down is determinate uh, has a specific sort of size that it grows to, um, sort of like a bushing tomato you would consider it. So you don't need to stake determinate tomatoes and they fruit all at once. Just a big puff of, of fruit and once it's sort of reached its full size kind of thing. Mm. Indeterminate, um, you can guess by the name, does not really have a determined size. It keeps growing. This is your typical vining tomato. Most of the tomatoes that we eat really uh, in day to day. Uh, And that will keep fruiting as it keeps growing and putting out more and more sort of spurs and, and doing all of that. And if you get some volunteer indeterminate tomatoes, sometimes you'll you'll know about it because it will it can build out to square meters. Oh yeah, and and if you've ever grown tomatoes, uh, you are likely going to have those surprise tomatoes popping up all over your garden. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those are the best ones mm. if you just leave them. Yep. They're obviously adapted to the area. Um, with this plant. Important not to top water. Try not to top water if possible. Um, so not watering over the leaves. Um, they are susceptible to blight and things like that. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of. This is why people I think have trouble with them sometimes. Is they they can get disease quite easily. Mm, yeah. Um, and they they do kind of always go that way near the end of their life. They always get a bit. Ugh. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Plants. Mm. I think one thing, especially with um, with some of these plants, is that they're not designed to last forever, yeah. and they do have a lifespan um, where you know the the foliage is going to dry die off. Um, some of it might get diseased as well throughout, yeah. and again, there's ways to to treat that and to to deal with that, and it might be picking them off. Or we'll actually talk about a few of the yeah. maintenance parts of tomatoes that can help you. Pr- give it a bit longer life and potentially and hopefully more fruit. That's it. Um, but, of course, we can't talk about tomatoes. Favourites. With favourite varieties. Yeah. Uh, everyone's got them. Uh, what are yours, Brendan? Right. So some with success of growing and some with flavours. Um, we had some great success with tigerellas. Mm. So the, the I think, variegated in, in this instance as yep. well, but different colours uh, on the outside, often yellow and orange and red. Yeah. Roma tomatoes, always love from Classic. a cooking point of view. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, cherry tomatoes, for fun. Yep. Just picking them off and being able to have tomatoes with the kids and picking them off the plant and off the vine. Uh, Beefsteak tomatoes, really enjoy. I've got a Hungarian heart tomato in which is i believe a larger beefsteak style tomato yeah cool and uh yellow pear so some smaller tomatoes again with a yellow shape so not going into that deep red um Mm. nice and lovely very light awesome for contrasting colors in things like salads and yeah those are a couple that's awesome what about you oh i've got so many i i I tried so hard and i narrowed it down to to five that i've grown in the past um, I've probably grown maybe 
a dozen different types of tomatoes with varying success. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think in general, if you're getting started, maybe start with cherry tomatoes mm. just because they're. I find that they're a bit easier uh, and prolific. Yeah, <laughs> That's the way to put it. But uh, on that note, um, so the th- sort of three cherries that I, I've picked here. So uh, the cherry golden, uh, this goes by a few other different names, but quite similar to a yellow pear, but a bit more round. Um, and it's just a really prolific cropping uh, cherry tomato, sort of that darkish yellow to very light orange color. I'm a big fan of that. Uh, the classic Tommy Toe. So this is, um, yeah, a incredibly prolific. I know I've said that a few times, but mm. this one is probably the most. That's that what I've we want. We want the return on investment. This is the one where you're like, I can't offload these. The tomatoes are my favorite. Yep. My favorite thing to grow uh, and to eat. And <laughs> just, you literally can't eat all the Tommy Toes that you can grow. Um, brown cherries. Mm-hmm. So heirloom brown cherries. So they're those... Slightly bigger than a normal cherry tomato. If you ever buy the mixed pack of cherry tomatoes, sometimes from the you see one or two in there. Of those bigger brown ones, yep, those ones. Um, they're really really nice. And of the bigger tomatoes, so of the sort of slicing beefsteak kind of variety, the Cherokee Purple, mm. and a few of the crossbred versions of that. But uh, Cherokee Purple, I find, is a really beautiful balance of tart and sweet, and it has that when you sort of slice it open and it it looks like an heirloom tomato. Mm. You know, it's like real flowery looking on the inside, lots of patterns. Cool. And one, I don't know if you've seen this one before, but I, I will. you have to grow this. It's unbelievable. Uh, the I th- I've always known it as the traveler tomato, um, but there's a name for it, Reise Tomate. I think that's German. I don't know. But basically, how do I describe this? Imagine... Uh, a handful of cherry tomatoes that are all fused into one tomato. So you can kind of, you know, some of those real um, heirloomy tomatoes are very lobed, have really Mm, deep mm. ridges and lobes. Imagine that to the extreme where each of these lobes, if you pull one off, doesn't actually expose the rest of the flesh of the tomato. Wow. They all kind of join up at at the stem. Kind of got a um, grapes, a thought of grapes in my in my head. That sort of that sort of vibe. Uh, have a look at it after. I will, yeah. um, but it's called the traveler tomato because you can you can grab one of these tomatoes, put it in your pocket, and as you're hungry, you pull it out, you peel off one bit of it. <laughs> it's like a secret of, of orange, and the, yeah, and the rest <laughs> of the tomato is completely unexposed to, wow. to the you know to the air. And it's going to be better than an orange. You can't yeah. do that with an orange. <laughs> Basically, it's like a cherry tomato, but you don't have to like, you know, have a handful of tomatoes rolling around, That's you know. Brilliant. It's brilliant. I love it. it. They're really cool. I believe you can get them at the Diggers Club. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure that's where I would have gotten them many, many years ago when I grew this one. Um, so I think I'll look to grow that one again sometime soon. But Looks yeah, like, that's it look, mine. It looks like I need an excuse to head back out to Diggers. Yeah. <laughs> Do you really though? <laughs> it's an excuse to go to Diggers. Uh, so <laughs> this is brilliant. No, it's really great. Mm. Um, so many uses for tomatoes. And I keep on thinking about food now, uh, but roasted cherry tomatoes on the vine. Oh, amazing. Really, really good. That's it. So tips and tricks. Yes. Where do we start with this, Brendan? Okay, so choose your variety. I think Mm. actually just jumping back one second and digressing back to the uh, supermarket and the different colours. Yeah. If you're planting a few varieties, 
you can do that. You can do the mix and match and have the amazing fancy looking salad yeah. from your own garden that doesn't even need to go to the uh, expensive supermarkets. That's it. Way, way cheaper. It tastes mean- 100% better as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the age old, does it taste better homegrown or from the store? Hands down, it's not even a question. That's it. No, yep. It doesn't even come into it. Um, from the garden, any day. And yep. sun-dried as well or sun, like vine ripened on the sun. Yeah. Also, pro tip, don't put your tomatoes in the fridge. Don't put them in the fridge? It destroys the flavour. There you go. It breaks down the chemicals. This is why you listen flavor. to the show. Yeah, I know, right? There you go. They, they last perfectly well, not in the fridge because <laughs> that's how they are in the supermarket. So, anyway. Kathleen, we will be getting to your question very, very shortly. Mm. Um, but some tips and tricks. Choose your variety uh, for your setup. Uh, again, if you're getting an indeterminate tomato, it's not going to be going into a really small courtyard. It um, That might wind up going over the yeah. fence. <laughs> uh, maybe a determinate tomato. Or um, just consider that your variety, consider your setup. Uh, potentially start your seeds indoor or in a greenhouse, cold frame, as we mentioned before, yep. to get a bit of a head start. We have just passed the grand final weekend. Congratulations, Collingwood, on the grand final win. <laughs> and this is the time. Everybody, for, as in terms of old... It's old, like, where are you the, going the with Nana's that? Nana's Tales <laughs> is yeah. when do you plant tomatoes and it's always grand final season or yeah. grand final day. Um, this is a great time. As a bit of a thing, grand finals happening, final season's happening, get the tomatoes happening. That's it. Um, we, we discussed before, determinate and indeterminate. And we also can plant very deep with tomatoes. Mm. So this is very much a great tip. The hairs can become roots on the tomato stem. So if you're planting into um, into a bigger pot or you're potting up, um, which we'll get to in just a moment, you can actually take off the bottom few leaves and allow the, the cutting to to branch out essentially and create mm. new roots. You've got an existing root structure, but it's still going to take those roots up and they are called adventitious roots. Oh. So uh, this actually can happen later on down the track when you see roots coming out of the top of the, the or out of the ground, but still coming off of the tomato, which yeah. is a bit funny. Mm. Some other ones is set them up with supports. Um, or something to grow along. Sidebar on this, so there's there's a lot of ways to support tomatoes. Um, you know, if you are interested in growing big monster tomato vines, I would encourage you to look into two in particular. So one is the Florida Weave, which is a great way to grow them along almost like espalier fruit trees, you know, sort of along a 2D plane. Mm-hmm. A really good way to do that where you, it's, it's almost uh, – idiot proof this method you don't need to tie anything it's more just about weaving uh string through Mm -hmm. um so it's a really nifty little system you've got the single leader way of doing it where you don't allow any of the branching parts of the tomato to continue you just have one big strong leader with a you know string that gets wrapped around it in a spiral up to a frame at the top that's how you'll find them typically grown commercially big four-metre-tall towers of cherry tomatoes uh, in warehouses. You can do just a bit more sort of freestyle net trellis. We just get a sort of net trellis of some sort and then just tie it up wherever you can. Mm. Um, You can also just do a sort of a teepee style. So, you know, half a dozen long bamboo stakes, 
tie it up at the top and sort of wrap some string around it and let it just go up that as well. Um, so just pick something that works for a the variety of tomato. Big heavy tomatoes need more support. Yeah. Yep. Um, and the space that you have. Yeah. Great call. Mm. Another tip that uh, plenty, plenty of people talk about, and it's a very common one, is picking off the suckers. Mm, yeah. So how where the suckers sit is, uh, or can you explain it to us, Henry? You've got the, the leaf and it's branching off and then from right in that wedge. You get a sucker, which is essentially where it something that could become another, another stem, essentially mm. another branch, uh, so to speak, in the tomato plant. Um, I mean, I know people that just let them go yep. wild. But if you are trying to improve airflow, which is very important with tomatoes, um, you want to get rid of those ideally or most of those. Uh, It's not massively going to affect your fruit production if you are letting that tomato get really tall anyway. Um, Yeah. And just really it's about opening up the plant is the way that I see it. Yeah, um, more than anything. Maintaining the plant. Mm. Yeah. And with those suckers, you can actually come along just with your fingers. Unpinch them off. Pinch them off. Grab when they're young, them. as they get quite big, you might damage the main stem when you do that. Correct, so then you yeah. might want to come in with snips or, or seckies and just give them a proper little trim. Mm-hmm. Mm. Some good companion plants for tom- Tommies. Basil. Basil. Obviously, that's the classic, right? Yeah. There's, a, there's a reason why people cook them together. It's actually because they're really well grown together. Yep, yep. <laughs> so it's often easy to harvest them at the same time. Um, sweet alyssum is another great one as well. I just bought some today. I was hey, excited. There we go. Yeah, I found some. And um, yeah, I'm going to get them into the garden very quickly. Mm. The basil as well from an insect prevention point of view. Uh, sorry, from a um, pest deterrent point of view. Yeah. Mm. Give plenty of seeds, uh, give the seeds room. So when we're planting seeds, you can germinate lots and lots and lots of tomato seeds very, very easily. Yeah. Um, we don't don't want to crowd them too heavily together. So give them plenty of room. Provide lots of light. The tomatoes are going to love the sunlight. Yeah. And circulate the air. And this is another one, again, we'll talk a bit later on about disease, but to um, prevent blight. Absolutely. Um, how to prepare the soil. So you want something that is well-draining but does hold moisture. So your good, nice, loamy soil uh, is what you want or good quality uh, potting mix. They do make versions that are more suited to tomatoes specifically. Um, If you want to go down that route and not make your own mix, that's fine. Just make sure it's a good organic top-of-the-range version. Um, Don't go the cheap basics stuff more likely than not to kill your tomatoes than actually help them out. Uh, Lots of compost uh, and a a balanced organic fertilizer. So worm castings is always a good one. Uh, It's the easiest sort of one to start with. Uh, But really you don't want something that's like super, super high in nitrogen because you'll get a beautiful leafy looking monster tomato and not many tomatoes potentially, (laughs) which is no good since you can't eat the leaves. Um, keep the bottom leaves clean. So as they start to die off, and they will die off, mm. you want to pick off those dead leaves. Uh, it usually starts near the bottom of the plant and moves up. If it starts at the top of the plant and moves down, you might have an issue, so you have to look into that. But just remove them. Um, and really what you can do is, as a good sort of uh, method, I suppose, for pruning, is everything below the lowest set of fruit – 
you can just prune off. Yep. And you might it might look a bit leggy and weird at the bottom, but who cares if you're getting more tomatoes? Mm-mm. Those leaves at the bottom under that bottom fruit aren't going to be really contributing much to the plant. Yep. yep. And if you're doing succession planting as well, so let's say, for example, you're starting some off early in the season, mm. maybe some three or four weeks later and then another run three or four weeks after that. Um, uh, if there are some plants that really don't make it, then hopefully, you know, we can re- replant it or yeah. <laughs> get some use out of that space still. But again, what you're mentioning is really prolonging the life and the health of the plant, um, giving you the best benefit, the most produce. That's it. And one that I cannot recommend enough is do not let them ripen on the vine fully. Uh-huh. So this is one where you see vine ripened tomatoes. They're usually not ripened on the vine. That vine is cut off and then they're ripened without the vine on the tomato. Mm. Um, and the reason for this is tomatoes will achieve their maximum flavor when they have only a little bit of their color. They don't need to be fully red or whatever color they are in order to have full flavor, which is not the case with other fruit, for example. So when you have maybe a third Mm -hmm. of that final color present, the rest can be totally green, doesn't matter. Feel free to harvest at that point and just ripen them on the counter. They won't take long. The reason for that is a few – there's a few reasons for that. Number one, big bright red tomatoes – are a magnet for birds mm-hmm. and possums and mm-hmm. whatever else. So if you can get them off sooner, you're going to get more fruit in the long run. Yeah, birds are the big one for me. Mm. Um, and I was just thinking about this as well. I 100% agree with you. I like to harvest a little bit earlier. Mm. I find that I get to save more fruit. Um, the birds do love them and I don't completely net tomatoes and those yeah. sorts of things. So often and the birds are obviously going to spread those seeds around the garden yeah. as well so you will get uh, <laughs> Which new is plants okay, coming up you know uh the other little reason though uh for for doing that is uh and it just escaped me i had it in my head uh and it's gone so oh yeah sorry splitting splitting <laughs> yes splitting so tomatoes if you've ever grown tomatoes you've probably had them split on you and that's almost certainly due to uh, inconsistent watering. Mm, or a lot of uh, rain or, or something. Or a lot of, yeah, big mm. rain event or something like that. So um, harvesting them when they're a little bit earlier, a little bit firmer, they will ripen anyway, so it's fine. Uh, prevents that from potentially happening to you. You can still eat a split tomato. It's not the end of the world, but, mm-hmm. you know, up to you there. And it will really last a long time as well. So vine ri- or, or if you take them off as they're starting to take on colour, as mm. you said, maybe a third there, take them off, pop them in. Even if some, if you've got a long row, which is a vine growing tomato, yeah. the end ones might all be green. And by the time, I give it a week or two weeks and they will last a long time. It won't rot and go uh, mouldy or anything like that mm. as long as it's in a good ventilated area. It actually it. sit there on, on the bench for quite a while. Absolutely. Mm. So, we do have another few little secrets up our sleeve, but talking about potting up, let's go to Kathleen's question because yes. I think it's a great time for it. Um, Kathleen, you were mentioning uh, 
when to pot up. We've got some tomato seedlings and the question was at what stages do we pot up and why do we pot up? And essentially what this is is we're starting off our seedlings as very, very small. Mm. Um, We're popping them in seed-raising mix in many times or a propagation mix. Uh, It may not be the end soil for what the plant is growing in. Uh, There's very limited room, so there's only going to be a lifespan of so long that a little plant can stay in a little container for as it's wanting to grow up a bit bigger. Generally with tomatoes, you can, again, you can experiment, but generally a couple of steps only, a couple of replants. One going from your very small seedling pot into maybe a a 10 centimetre diameter pot uh, and then allowing that plant to then mature a little bit more up to maybe 25, 30 centimetres thereabouts and then after that, it's probably the next step is to go into its final home. Yeah. We definitely don't want to transplant things continuously or many, many times. The plant's not going to like it too much. It will stress out the plant. And that actually was the specific size that Kathleen uh, mentioned, which was can I put a healthy um, 25 centimetre high seedling straight into a 20 litre pot? Or should I pot it up into, say, a two-litre size pot and then up again? So, no, you don't have to pot it up again Mm. at that stage. As we said before, 25 centimetres high, maybe the first 10 centimetres, remove all leaves Mm. and bury it 10 centimetres deeper um, than you otherwise would and you're good to go. Yep. Love it. it. Keep the water up to it. Make sure it's got a nice balanced fertiliser. Worm castings would be my preference to start with. And we'll talk about what you can switch to a little bit later on in terms of fertilizing. And then, yeah, watch it rock it off. Mm, Rock and roll. I love it. Thank you, Kathleen. There we go. Um, So, yeah, a few extra little secrets Mm -hmm. up our sleeves for giving them a boost. So, a handful of bone meal to the soil, which adds phosphorus and calcium. Calcium is super important for tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Um, It is important, as we have mentioned in previous episodes, uh, pH testing. Because if your soil has a pH of 7 or higher, so highly alkaline soil, is that what you meant by that, higher? Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, bone meal can be quite ineffective. Um, so just something to note there. Um, crushed up eggshells, again, is another good one. Um, if you want to use the eggshell method, I, even more so than crushing out, I'd probably even blend them into like a fine powder. Really small, as small yeah, as you small can get as them. as possible. Yeah. Um, uh, a pinch of Epsom salts. I've not heard of this trick before. Mm. What's this one about? Uh, so it's to, the design here is for uh, increasing germination, early root and cell development, photosynthesis, plant growth, and also present, uh, preventing the, the blossom end rot that we spoke about last time. Then what else? Some folks side dress the plants with liquid seaweed. Mm. We mentioned a moment ago or a fish emulsion, yep. um, compost tea, and... Tomatoes are quite heavy feeding, so we, we want to keep them happy. Um, we do want to do organic composts uh, and in water. And if you're doing a organic, let if you're doing a weed tea, let it sit for a little bit uh, before throwing it onto the garden and filter the tea. Um, what else? And a really big one here mm. uh, is once they do start getting a bit bigger and a bit leafy, you do want to sort of transition to. Uh, more of a potassium-rich fertilizer. So liquid potash is the one you'll hear thrown around um, or even wood ash or something like that to encourage a better fruit set and and make sure you're not just getting a ton of leafy growth. Uh, I think that's the big one is people will just add your 
all-purpose, inverted commas, fertilizer, which is usually some of them are usually just too high in nitrogen and then you just end up with that leafy growth. So mm-hmm. look at potash or something like that um, can really help get so a bigger crop. No, no nitrogen or no high nitrogen fertilizers mm. unless you've got something like yellowing leaves yep. or something along those. So we don't want that lush foliage growth um, with, without fruit. We definitely want the fruit. That's it. So, yeah, how about that for a deep dive on tomatoes? Mm. Everybody's going to be out there planting their tomatoes right now. I hope so. And <laughs> we just hope that you have all the success. We hope that you have a, a ripping bounty and lots of tomatoes to share. <laughs> That's it. Um, and, look, if you... If there's something that you would like for us to do a spotlight on, perhaps something that you're interested in, um, feel free to text that into us as well and we'll try and include it in a future show and, and go a bit of a deep dive for you. Sounds great. Here on The Gardening Show. Um, so let's go to a song. Uh, this one is by Aussie legends Lime Cordial and it is Addicted to the Sunshine, another sun song. Hey, I'm Jane Oakley, a Matilda alumni footballer, number 36, and you're listening to Radio Karen. Stay tuned. And we're back. Welcome. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I just had had a complete brain fart there. (laughs) Uh, Once again, that was Addicted to the Sunshine by Lime Lime Cordial. Um, And we're on The Gardening Show with Henry and Brendan. That's right. That's where we are. (laughs) It's been a long week so far. Uh, let's talk permaculture. Yeah, so, yeah, we're nearly there. We're getting through them. This one, yeah, we are. I mean, how many? We have three more after this. Yep. So, um, yeah, here we go. This one really speaks to my soul. Slow and small solutions. Bring it on. <laughs> as opposed to large, stressful uh, solutions. So, um, yeah, a little bit of an intro into it here. So, small and slow systems, as you can imagine, are going to be much easier to maintain Mm. than big complicated ones right um so i i kind of go back to the 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 idiom the proverb whatever it is uh, you know the bigger they are the harder they fall Mm -hmm. is one that i think of um and the classic you know slow and steady wins the race yep that's the first thing that popped into my head just before really what this one is about so um yeah i mean what what are your thoughts on this to begin with yeah, yep. So I like this straight off the bat from a scientific approach and a oh, scientific standpoint. Okay. Um, when we're when we're talking slow and small, um, giving the ability to see the subtle changes, to monitor, to learn, to refine, and also understanding that even a little bit of some things can be a lot for a plant uh, or a garden environment. So. Sometimes I, I think about this in a way I need to temper my enthusiasm if I yeah. want to bite <laughs> off way more than I can chew and then I've got a lot of responsibility to maintain. Um, slow and steady. Yeah, I like the idea of monitoring, trialing, seeing what happens and then adapting from there. That's a really, that's a really nice, succinct way to put it. Um, yeah, sort of. Yeah, well, let me get into it. So I've got, I've got a few notes here on, on sort of what did I put together for this one. So, I mean, unlike, you know, a quick fix approach, of course, um, nature relies – nature, and again, what's permaculture? It's trying to sort of go more with the flows of nature. Yep. Um, it, nature relies on slow kind of adaptive processes, right, to maintain balance um, and, and, and be more sustainable, you know. The problem with us humans is that we we don't do that 
more often than not, you know. So we we like big interventions, chemicals, mm. machinery, especially since the uh, Industrial Revolution, and these harm ecosystems. Um, so a, a, fu- a fun, it's absolutely not a fun fact, a really depressing fact is that, um, you know, over the past six years, uh, 60 years, we have rapidly depleted our topsoil, that, you know, top 30 centimetres of soil where all life on earth relies, you know, uh, where all of our food comes from. And just through, yeah, overuse of, um, of industrial methods, we are destroying that. So, yeah, small and slow solutions, they offer you time to understand what impact you're having mm-hmm. and, and make adjustments accordingly. So it comes back to that observe and interact and yeah, they all kind of relate together. A gradual solution um, means that you can correct things and have the time to see that they've worked. Mm-hmm. An example that I might use for this is um, treating a nutrient deficiency. Right, your plant has yellowing leaves. You've tested the pH. Okay, so it's definitely a nitrogen deficiency from what you can tell. And then you blast it with a nitrogen, a high nitrogen uh, fertilizer. That's not a great solution. You're likely to really harm your plant. The better option is to go small, little bits, more frequently. Actually, what pay- you reach came- that level? What came to mind was blueberries, uh, and yeah. perhaps I've mentioned this in the past. Mm. I can't remember if I have on the show or not, but um, I had some blueberry pants in pots. Really fond of them. I wanted to get them going. Knew that they liked high acids, and I put some fertilizer on it, and it was way too much. All oh, right. Because <laughs> by the next day, it wasn't even twelve hours later, or probably twelve hours or thereabouts. Every single leaf on the tree was brown. And wow. I was like, oh no, I've done these blueberries are not looking good. Um, I think I saved them just, but it did put it back at a good season. Yeah. So it was pretty close to the brink. And I realized then I was like, right, okay, not a lot. Small mm. approach. That's probably what's going to be more helpful next time for the blueberries. Yeah. Great example. I mean, that, that really is kind of the whole how industrial farming works in many ways where, you know, you're you're pumping this desolate land full of fertilisers and then you're having to pump something else in to counteract the effect of that and then something else and then something else. And then, mm. yeah, you can imagine what that does to the ecosystem. Yeah, mm. absolutely. We want, um, we want a, a strong and diverse ecosystem yeah. uh, relying on different sorts of things. And often that's why we hear about the idea of monoculture we know why it's been there. We know obviously for so many years it's built up and it's been mm. able to provide, it's been high yield and all of those sorts of methods. And we haven't had those small-scale permaculture sort of principles or home gardening ones that have effectively managed yeah. that. Some people do and it's on a small scale. We haven't quite solved the problem yet. I think there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, totally. Let's um, solve it together. Yeah. That's why we're here, everybody, <laughs> in our own little way. Um, but a few other things, you know, uh, I think small and slow solutions, um, they can – It's still, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel a bit overwhelmed by a big task in the garden or, or a big issue in the garden. I'm like, how am I, how am I even going to tackle this? Mm. Well, the best way in, in gardening and in life is to just start with something slow and small and build on that over yep. time. Uh, so gardening is no different. Um, it's also a good way to minimize risk. 
So, you know, small-scale solutions are less risky and they're easier to correct if they don't work as expected. So I, do you remember where they, like, you get a new paint or you get something that you need to trial out first and it says apply to a test area first? Yes. Think about the same thing in the garden. Um, maybe if we're going to treat an area, don't do the whole plant or the whole crop, maybe one or two plants and, and see, see how it happens. goes. Yep. Yeah, that's a great example. Imagine painting a house by just going and buying the paint and then just, just painting your whole house without doing the little <laughs> test bits. Yeah, exactly. Um and, of course, another big one is, is adaptation. So a gradual approach uh, allows for flexibility, you know, and adaptation as you learn from the results. It also allows plants to adapt because plants can't adapt super quickly like people sometimes can, right? Mm. Um, a big change, uh, and you'll notice this, you know, if it's you know, a big rain event or, or something that's a bit out of whack, it can kill your plants mm. because they're not used to that. So... There you go. Um, that That's a few of the bits and pieces. Now, where are we going with this moving forward? So farmers, thankfully, uh, more so are adopting regenerative practices on mm. smaller and more diverse farms, which is what you spoke about. Um, shifting towards that regenerative agriculture um, helps to you know restore ecosystems, improve sustainability, but also really importantly, resilience in food systems. So as most of modern society does we currently rely on a few really massive farms to produce the vast majority of our food and they often specialize in just one crop Hmm. so okay i understand the need for that to feed the masses of course um or it has certainly been the case um up until now but the failure of one of those can be massively devastating so we're talking food. food security. Yeah, mm. definitely. I'm sure we'll do a we'll do a full episode on on you know sort of food security in the in the future of food. Mm. Um, but you know we can even just see this with um, and I don't obviously want to get into politics in any way, shape, or form. But the uh, the the war in Ukraine and what that has done to wheat and and grain there mm. and affected the supply of that to many parts of the world that are massively relying on that food source Mm. um so that's really where at least you know in in our system here um we have a bit more flexibility that we can try some different things um and i I do it is it does keep me optimistic when you do hear mm. about different farming techniques changing and uh adopting regenerative practices and looking at those small scale stuff I, i do love the idea of us ourselves allowing being able to support ourselves a little bit better yeah um, potentially yeah. lifting our reliance giving ourselves a bit more resilience as well yeah absolutely um, and then knowing where your food's come from what you're eating how you're eating it where it's what it's growing in it's really good it's really great stuff if you want a good example of this there's this place i know uh in seaford called Downs Community Farm. Oh, yeah. Have yeah. you heard of it? Oh, they yeah. Have, yeah. You can see a little bit of this in practice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are some examples in in our home gardens that we can do? So mm. I'm going to keep coming back to this. I think every permaculturalist has their token thing that they go to. So some are like you have to put in a herb spiral and some are like you have to do a swale. Uh, and I'm the you have to start collecting your rainwater. <laughs> rainwater collection, yeah. Rainwater collection. Um you know, instead of installing a large, expensive irrigation system that um, you know, needs mains pressure water to work um, and obviously is going to 
use that water source, maybe start a bit simple and slow. Get some old, big old barrels, you know, mm. uh, food safe barrels, um, and collect the rainwater there and monitor whether that actually works for your system already. Maybe you don't need to go the full, you know, big complicated computer-driven irrigation system. Mm. It could be a bit easier. As we mentioned before, before, you know, forking out potentially thousands of dollars to build a fancy greenhouse, uh, maybe build a cold frame Yep, uh, from some old timber and a piece of glass or the um, upside-down, an upside-down Tupperware container or whatever, you know. You can totally do that as well. Yeah. Uh, and another one, uh, using animals for lawn maintenance. So saving you fuel, um, you'll see get the added benefit of manure. Mm. Um, but you'd be surprised what a couple of guinea pigs can do for a lawn mm. if you sort of move them around. And I have no doubt. In fact, I'm, I'm sure there are um, people out there who will – have uh, goats or something along those lines yeah. that will bring them to your property under conditions and things to allow them to graze onto particular areas. I, I've seen it happening at one point along the east link, uh, oh, okay. along the drains there, and uh, to see the, the goats be set up and partitioned into a particular space and it's, it's places that you can't get the mower into, yeah. um, really effective. Good way to get rid of the brambles and the mm. blackberries and stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a business idea. Maybe you and I should start breeding guinea pigs and we can rent them out to our listeners. Lawnmowers. As lawnmowers. Henry and Brendan's <laughs> lawnmower service. You can keep the manure yourself. <laughs> uh, so there you go. There, there's a slow and small solutions. Uh, what did you think of that, Brendan? That's good. That's yeah. good. Uh, it makes it again. It makes Resonates sense. Resonates with you? It does. Yep. That's awesome. So here's, here's your homework, everybody. Uh, have a think. What's your next big project in the garden? So maybe it is rainwater collection. Uh, you know, maybe it's uh, you want to completely redo your front yard um, to be totally different. Um, maybe it's that job that you've been putting off because it's too expensive or it's going to take a lot of time. Um, maybe it's stressing you out. Um, have a think. Is there a slow or small solution that you can implement that would achieve the same outcomes? Maybe you haven't thought about that, but maybe there is. Um, or at least something to get it started and help you to see the success building instead of just seeing a huge insurmountable task. Mm. Um, yeah, there you go. For me, I think on this side, mm. you've drilled it into me a couple of times and it's rainwater collection. Oh, do it. <laughs> because it is what I'm lacking at, on at our house at the mm. moment. And I, I think... That's exactly what I'm going to do. Start small. Instead of it might not be coming off the roof, I might just set up a small catchment uh, yeah. with with a piece of corrugated iron um, or sheeting and just see what I can get, see if it works. You would be surprised with a standard sheet of alley zinc or colour bond or tin mm. sheeting sort of funneled into one of those big blue, we have them at Downs, those big blue um, olive oil just barrels. About kind a of 200 or 180 litre uh, drum. One big rain event could potentially fill it mm. or go off a far way towards filling it. You'd be surprised. Um, so, yeah. Love it. It's a nice way to do it. Thanks for enlightening us again, as usual, Henry, <laughs> on the permaculture principles. It's most excellent. Uh, I think time for a song. Definitely. And when we come back, we have a comment that we can we'll read out from one of our listeners. Uh, but we'll go into this uh, final song of today. Uh, this one is by Camp with two A's. Maybe it's Camp. I'm not sure. I haven't looked up the uh, pronunciation. Uh, and the song is Peach Fuzz.
Hello, my name is Océane. I come from Martinia and you are listening to Radio Carom. Welcome back to The Gardening Show on Radio Carom. I'm Henry. And I'm, I'm Brendan. And you're Brendan. <laughs> uh, once again, that was Peach Fuzz by Camp or Camp. <laughs> and sure. straight off the bat, we have our text that we got in. Hey. Uh, this is says, congratulations on 10 episodes, guys. We've been loving the show and how it's evolved over time. I'm learning heaps from both uh, from you both in my garden and my garden's confidence is growing. I can't read today. <laughs> <laughs> Would be great to hear some more about family-friendly recipes you've made with the stuff you're growing in the future shows. Thank you, Hannah. Awesome. awesome. Thanks, Hannah. That's great. And yes, that's a great topic. Mm, uh, we'll definitely... Yep. Yeah, get more into it. Cause why do you grow food if not to eat it? Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, last um, last topic of the day. So this is one, I mean, this is one we could do an entire show on, to mm. be honest, but we'll give a just a sort of general breakdown. And, and I do encourage everyone to, to do a bit more research on this. Um, it's definitely worth your time and effort. And that's common plant diseases and deficiencies. So mm. how to diagnose and treat them. Yeah. So just wanted to jump into one really quickly because mm. it's taking on from our previous topic um, and that was in the tomatoes. Yeah. And we've seen uh, many examples. I've seen loads online of people questioning adventitious roots um, forming along the, st- along the stem. So people will say, well, hang on a second, what's wrong with my, my tomatoes? <laughs> it's got these white things growing off the side There's of it. worms growing off my tomato. That's right. What's going on? Can Are they safe? Can I still eat them? Can I eat the fruit from them? Absolutely. So this adventitious, um, adventitious roots. And these are basically roots that are forming from those hairs out of the ground. Mm. Um, often it's going to be happening where it's closer towards the ground, yep. potentially a bit lower down on the plant and totally fine. It's yep. not, not a problem at all. So not a disease. <laughs> no, not Don't a worry disease. about that one. Um, we've spoken about blossom end rot. Mm. So that's another big one for tomatoes. And then this, this last one that we've uh, mentioned briefly is blight, which is a fungal pathogen. Um, and I just wanted to mention blight really quickly. So uh, the one that I see very well, most, the form of blight that I see most commonly around the garden and, and in my own garden from mm. time to time is early blight. Yep. And it's a common form. Um, it is a fungus and it's an alternaria solani. Solani. So that tells me that it is affecting solanaceous plants. Mm. Which potato blight is another one I think of yep. when I think of blight. I like it. It's actually it's mm. it's the Tetris pieces are falling into, yeah, into right. the brain as to how this all works. And I've to got then. that those like that meme of like math symbols <laughs> <laughs> floating around the head, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Calculating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so the this the alter, alternaria solani causes early blight. It does prefer uh, humid and warm conditions, mm. and the fungus may persist for, may persist from season to season on volunteer potatoes or tomato plants, and also on um, weed hosts from the nightshade family. So, mm. if you are getting those, uh, was it the Bella, the deadly nightshade? Deadly if nightshade. it's popping up, um, that can potentially, if you're keeping blight around in that area from volunteer plants. Um, so controlling weeds, how do we get rid of it? Uh, we want to control our weeds. We want to control the volunteer plants. We want to remove infected plant material. 
And um, we, we mentioned it before, limiting the overhead water, removing those bits of leaves that have started to um, die or they're affected. Usually when we've got fungal and pest mm. sort of, uh, sorry, fungal issues, it's not likely going to be going back into the mulch and the compost. It's something that we want to keep out of Bag the compost. Bag it up and throw it in the bin. Yeah, mm. and we 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 spoke at very much a key thing about tomatoes is producing good airflow and to re- reduce or mitigate any risk there. Mm. Um, it can also be associated with nitrogen deficiency in soil, and so essentially minimizing plant stress uh, and setting a, a routine fertilization schedule, keeping it consistent, is yeah. what we were mentioning before, is going to be uh, a good way to prevent blight specifically. Absolutely. So that's that's a few big ones there for, for tomatoes. Mm. And we'll go into a few more that I think are obviously can affect lots of different types of plants, but are really seen as those general ones that mm. always kind of pop up. So one that you've almost certainly, if you've grown food, uh, in particular things like pumpkins um, and, and similar cucurbits, is uh, powdery mildew. Mm, seen it many, many times. Yeah, so you'll notice this. uh, It's like a white powdery substance on the leaves uh, and the stems, sometimes even flowers. Um, It can sort of distort the growth. It obviously weakens the plant. um, And it's one of those things that's almost certainly going to happen Mm -hmm. to to a pumpkin, for example, when it gets to a certain age. Again, plants age Mm. and and die like people. Yeah. What's the way to treat it? So removing infected plant parts, of course, increasing that air circulation. Again, it's a fungus, so we want to make sure that it doesn't have that really blocked-in, humid kind of microclimate from too much leaf. Um, And avoid the overhead watering. Um, Obviously, that reduces that total amount of moisture at the leaf. But, of course, that bouncing of water drops can really spread it elsewhere. Mm. So that's a big one too. Um, if you need to apply a fungicide, of course, um, following the label instructions. But if you just prune effectively, um, keep the plant healthy in terms of you know the right nutrients going into the soil, um, you can sort of push back the onset of this um, and, and get your harvest in time. That's right. A powdery mildew, it's, once it's in there and it's set, it's not really going to go away very easily. Mm. Um, often, as you said, it's part of the life cycle. It can be part of the life cycle. One strategy that I want to use for zucchini specifically for this yep. year uh, is to stand the zucchini upright and to give oh. it a growing frame and to actually remove the, uh, the leaves uh. as it starts to grow up and essentially turn it into an, an upright supported tree in some respects well, why not tree. <laughs> i'm keen i've seen it done before it's going to be my new experiment and hopefully that is to avoid lots of having having lots of foliage there to mm. potentially um take on that uh, powdery mildew definitely what else uh so next one um yellowing leaves mm. so this one, this this is a whole rabbit hole in itself, nutrient deficiencies, um, but typically yellowing leaves may indicate a nutrient deficiency. Um, so yellowing, also known as chlorosis um, of the leaves, uh, can indicate various different types of nutrient deficiencies. Um, a common one, of course, is a lack of nitrogen, which causes the older leaves to turn yellow while the veins remain green. Now, it's important do a bit of research, get up, uh, you know, like a, 
a set of pictures and maybe keep them in your garden journal or something um, to show you what these different deficiencies present as because some of them do look very similar um, but some of them are, are quite different and you can't just paint it all with the same brush. Mm. It's, as we've mentioned as well, it's important to know the pH of the soil uh, so that you can see that perhaps a nutrient deficiency isn't because of a lack of nutrients in your soil, it's because your pH is off mm. and your plants just can't access it. So mm. that's a really important thing. Um, how do you treat this? Well, obviously, test your soil. Figure out what you're working with to begin with so that you can be really accurate with this. Um, if it is nitrogen, apply a balanced fertilizer that contains a good amount of nitrogen um, according to the recommended rate on the packet as well. So not overdosing thinking that you can get a quicker fix mm. as we've sort of mentioned already um yeah what else brendan we've got root rot mm. uh, which Nasty. is a disease um root rot causes wilting yellowing stunted growth in plants uh, it affects root it m- affected roots may appear dark slimy and have a foul odor um it's actually when I was reading this one, it, it takes me back to when we were talking about the hydroponic systems. Yeah. <clears throat> and essentially getting those roots where it was, the healthy roots was nice and white yeah. and you could lift it up and it would smell good. Mm. And if I saw browning or blackened or slimy, moldy parts down into the roots there, I knew I had to do something pretty yeah. quick smart. Um, so root rot, we can, to treat root rot, we can improve soil drainage. <clears throat> we can avoid overwatering. We can remove affected parts of the plants. And again, we can apply fungicides containing beneficial microbes if necessary as well. Hmm. So it's of course worth mentioning, you know, we're talking a lot about fungicides and things like that, which I, I always try and steer clear of those sorts of things. Mm. But, you know, we are talking about you know, if you really want to save a plant, yep. that's like coming close to death. Um, you know, always try and look for the organic option mm. in this instance. Um, otherwise, you may be doing more harm than good. You're most likely doing more harm than good in mm. the long term. Yeah. And specifically here in, in, in this environment, what we're doing right now is talking mm. about these common plant diseases and deficiencies. So we will have some advice in here, which is yeah. does relate back to shops and to buy stuff as well. Of course. Rust. 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 Oh, this one, yes. I, I've, I've definitely experienced this one, in particular with my, um, my snow peas. Snow <laughs> so, peas. Yeah. Um, rust is interesting because, you know, despite the fact that the bottom third of my snow peas – have rust um they've grown wonderfully still keep on growing <laughs> they keep on growing mm. all the new growth has been perfectly fine um so it hasn't massively affected but um it can quickly take over and destroy a plant um rust it manifests as orange brown or rust colored pustules or likely spots on the plant leaves and stems so this can weaken the plant and reduce photosynthesis um, which is why, yeah, if, if it takes over a plant too much too early, uh, it, it can stop it from ever reaching maturity. Mm-hmm. I've seen rust actually on a lot of leafy greens, mm. so spinaches, especially ones that have been left for a long time for the plant to really mature. Yeah. Um, and often on the older plants. <laughs> yeah. So, again, something that's generally plants are going to be if they're in a stressed or they're getting to the end of their life cycle, that's going to be where they're a bit more susceptible to these sorts of things as well. Mm. 
Definitely. Mm. So for treatment, um, you know, remove and destroy infected leaves or be like me and don't do that. <laughs> but you should. Um, maintain good garden hygiene, of course. So um, we will talk a bit about garden hygiene, I think, in another episode. Uh, mm. Keeping secateurs clean and things like that, not, yep. not spreading disease. Um, consider applying fungicide. Of course, rust, of course, is, is a type of fungus um, as a preventative measure. During the growth, during the growing season, um, but again, it's one of those ones that it's so common. It's almost certain that you're going to come up against it at some point. Uh, so it's just about mitigating um, the conditions which mm. allow rust to proliferate. So lots of humidity, bad airflow, all that sort of stuff. Mm. And I think sometimes it's important to realise that not everything's going to be 100% success all the time. Yeah. Sometimes I, as, um, we were mentioning things going to seed and I've got carrots at the moment which I'm letting go to seed and oh, I was really excited about them and they just didn't. Oh, no. It <laughs> did not go. <laughs> I was really looking forward to them. I had such high hopes but it's okay. They're going to serve another use. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was... Um, Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell that's a sore spot for you, that one. <laughs> Car- it's always carrots, isn't it? It's always yeah. carrots. Uh, what's the last one, Brendan? Wilting and drooping, so mm. water stress. And water stress, identificating identif- identification of water stress is essentially when we're getting a wilting, a drooping, curling of leaves, it can signal water stress. And that's either from overwatering generally or underwatering. Um, overwatered plants may have yellowing leaves and underwatered Plants may have dry, crispy leaves. Yeah. Treatment. Treatment. So, again, consistent. Consistent moisture levels in the soil. Um, so, adjust your watering practices. Water deeply less uh, and less frequently for most plants yeah. and ensure prop- proper drainage. So, drainage is always really important. You don't want wet feet or waterlogged roots. Yeah, absolutely. Um and just to, I guess, wrap this one up as well. So we've talked a lot about you know, diseases and, and deficiencies. Of course, we have, we've talked about pests in the past as well. Mm. And it is important to know that some pest damage presents uh, or looks like some diseases and things mm. like that. So, you know, it's a bit of a, oh, it's hard because pests, some of them you can see, some of them you can't, mm. some of them are microscopic. Um, so, you know, if you have... A tip that I, I guess we spoke about during the song is if you have multiple plants of the same type of plant experiencing the same sort of issue and you, for the life of you, cannot tell exactly what it is, maybe treat this as an experiment, mm. you know, and treat for a few of the different things it could be and see which one works. Yeah, you're and just going to be improving your knowledge. Improving your knowledge and then recording that information and then being able to go back to it and say, ah, oh, well, you know, in my garden in this spot it might in fact be this mm. next time um is potentially one way to do it also taking into account of course that you don't want to allow disease to grow and spread so no, that's right you know that's the thing you have to balance here um yeah any last thoughts on that one no that's it's just again slow and steady i think yeah we'll, we'll apply that <laughs> principle that principle that we learned today yeah um when we are running those sorts of experiments especially side by side experiments it's always good to have a control as well so mm. something that we're leaving as is um if we're going with multiple different treatment options to gauge uh success and, and effectiveness i think that's pretty much it uh, just then also 
reaching out. There's so many resources. Oh, yeah. So send us in a message if you've got any questions. We'll do our best. Um, but on the internet and uh, through books, through everything, there's lots and lots of resources out there and likely somebody has experienced that same issue in the past as well. Mm. Get, get on social media. Mm. Um, you know, there's lots of Facebook groups for gardeners in your area. I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can go there, put up a photo, let people duke it out on what it might be, yep. and then see what see what rises to the top, and that might be it. That's exactly <laughs> right. I like it. Um, so next show, what's coming yeah. up in the next show? Yeah. Uh, go for it, Henry. I'll go, okay, cool. Uh, so what's on in our gardens? Just talking, just general just, stuff. Just talking gardens. I mm. love it. Uh, we will do another spotlight. This one will be on sunflowers or really the daisy family in general, but we'll, we'll focus a bit on, on sunflowers because they are obviously something that a lot of people are getting into the garden at this time. Uh, we'll talk about the 10th permaculture principle. We're into the double digits. Uh, and this is use and value diversity. No surprises on that one. Uh, and one of my favorite uh types of garden things which is we'll talk about some diy garden hacks Mm. so yeah ones that have worked well yeah definitely i've got a lot of examples i'm sure you do too for things that can work um but yeah thanks as always to everyone for listening for participating for sticking with us Mm, 10 episodes 10 episodes um i hope you're not sick of my voice (laughs) but yeah we're having a lot of fun with it Mm. um and hopefully we'll be here for at least 10 more. <laughs> yep. Hopefully a lot more than that. Let's keep it going. Mm. Uh, get gardening, get into your gardens. Tell us all about it as well. Send us in messages for next time. Have a great week. See you in a couple. Next episode. Mm-hmm.